This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. The Missing is produced by What's the Story Sounds. They also make lots of other great content, which I think you might like. Why not sign up for What's the Story Crime? On there, you'll find series including The Missing completely ad-free, as well as bonus content and even entire series you can't hear elsewhere. Signing up is super easy. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Of the 170,000 people who go missing in the UK every year, a significant proportion of cases offer up compelling reasons behind the disappearance of the person in question. A domestic dispute, financial struggles, long-standing mental health issues. Sometimes, however, there are no easy answers available to us to help make sense of a loved one's sudden departure. No telling clues, no leads, just utter bewilderment. In this episode, we tell the story of Stephen Cooper, who left his home in Gokar, Huddersfield, in the early hours of the morning of his 47th birthday, vanishing from the lives of his friends and family. With no idea what on earth happened to him, 14 years later, they are still searching for answers. It doesn't matter how small it is, that small piece of information could make a huge difference. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series brought to you with support from the charity Missing People and investigation specialists Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, Stephen Cooper. I used to call him Plug, which is awful, I suppose, but I did, I did that from um, from being a child, I don't know, maybe five or six years old. And he, he was doing something, I don't know whether he was washing up or, or something, and I just called him Plug uh, from the cartoons, and it's something that, um, that stuck. That's Trish Cooper, Stephen's younger sister. She affectionately nicknamed her brother, who had a long, thin frame, after the similarly gangly comic strip character Plug from the Bash Street Kids in the Beano. I find it quite hard to not actually call him Plug 
uh, when I'm talking about them, especially to the press or um, to anybody, I need to remember that it's, it's Steve or Stephen and not Plug. Stephen was the oldest of four children, born and raised in West Yorkshire. He was tall, standing at six foot two inches, with blonde hair and a wiry build. Trish remembers him as a caring older sibling who would stick up for her if she was ever being picked on. He was protective, but not overbearing. He would get me up sometimes when my mum and dad were out and he'd put like spooky things on the telly and make me watch them, like Hammer House of Horror and um, things like that. And then I'd go to bed absolutely frightened to death. And then he'd come in and spook me. About an hour later, he'd be brain on the door, frightening the life out of him. They had a happy childhood, Trish says, with Stephen spending the vast majority of his racing around on various forms of two-wheeled transport. He had a push bike, and it's awful of me, but, well, myself and, uh, and my brother, we used to work the combination lockout that he'd put on it when he was going to work. And we'd take it in turns to work the combination lock on, on the lock that he put on his bike, and we'd sort of travel around on his push bike and make sure we were back before he came home from work, and the bike looked exactly where it, it was when he left it, so he, he had no idea that we'd been out playing on it all day. And then he bought himself um, a little scooter, which we called the banana machine, because you've never seen anything like it. It was bright yellow. Abs I don't know where on earth he bought it from, but it was just the most horrible colour. So we used to beg him and, and cajole him to let us have a go on it in the field at the back of the house, which he would never let us do. Stephen was ultimately something of a quiet soul. Not particularly sociable, though he did have a small, tight circle of friends. He wasn't one to sort of go out clubbing or going to the pub all the time. The friends that he had, he kept them, them close. And that was his life. He was happy with that. Absolutely happy with that. Stephen was quite accident-prone growing up, Trish remembers. Broken bones were a common occurrence. An attempt at climbing the three peaks during a stint with the Territorial Army resulted in a fractured ankle. Later on in life, about ten years before his disappearance, Stephen had a severe motorcycle accident. He was thrown from his bike onto a car, and the wing mirror punctured his lung. His subsequent trip into the emergency room to put him back together took an unexpected turn when he received a surprise diagnosis. The doctors revealed that Stephen had Marfan syndrome. It's a degenerative connective tissue disorder, which um, it doesn't affect that many people, to be fair. And, but we were very lucky, really, because the, the specialist that diagnosed Marfan's in him was working the night that he had his accident and was actually going on holiday for a month the morning after. He basically saved my brother's life um, because you have to have different anaesthetics, you have to be treated differently, there's different things that they've got to do when you've got Marfan's. People who suffer from Marfan syndrome tend to be tall and thin, as Stephen was, with long arms. The condition can lead to overly flexible joints which explained the laundry list of injuries Stephen had picked up over the years. Scoliosis is another common side effect, with the most serious complications involving the heart and the aorta. He was in a lot of pain. He struggled with his walking. 
he was on medication for that. He ended up um, on the motability scheme. He got a car through motability. He didn't sort of appreciate it really. He didn't think that he was poorly enough to actually get that. He didn't think he deserved it really, but he obviously did. He passed all the checks that needed to be done. Stephen worked a number of different jobs over the years to make ends meet. A gig with a dye manufacturing firm eventually ended in redundancy, after which he spent several years working at a woolen mill. After his bike accident, he mainly lived off disability allowance, but was always keen to keep himself busy and was a dab hand at carpentry. He was quite good and if there was somebody that needed a door fitting or he wouldn't make things particularly like tables and chairs and and ornaments or anything. He was more of a, you know, I'll sort your doors out or, you know, stuff like that. But that was stuff that he did through his friends. Um, didn't charge anybody as far as I'm aware. It, it was just, uh, you know, get me a pint when you see me sort of thing. But yeah, he, uh, my granddad gave him all his old tools um, and, and off he went really, but, yeah, it was, it was very good at what he did. During his time at the mill, Stephen met and married a woman named Jill. Together they had a son, Nathan. They lived together quite happily for a number of years, but the marriage eventually broke down and Stephen relocated to the nearby village of Gokar. There he entered into a new relationship with a lady called Claire, a part-time chef at a care home with two children of her own, who he moved in with although he remained on good terms with his ex-wife, Jill. Steve and Jill, Nathan's mum, did get on quite well and they were known to go out, not not go out drinking together, but they could be in the same room together and, and, and not be horrible to each other. It wasn't that sort of... They didn't fall out from the marriage, it's just that the marriage just didn't work. Nathan lived with his mother, but Stephen would visit regularly and Nathan would sometimes stay in the home Stephen shared with Claire. They enjoyed each other's company, and they did get on. It, it wasn't, um, you know, if Nathan was naughty, he got, got telling off. But again, I didn't live there, so I, I can't, I can only speak from really what, what I've seen when they were together and from conversations that I've had with Nathan over the years since Steve's been missing and and just... They had, they had a good relationship. Stephen and his sister Trish stayed close into adulthood too. She'd often visit on a Sunday afternoon and the pair of them would go to the local British Legion Club and play cards with friends. They also spoke on the phone and texted regularly. Steve used to come down at Christmas, on Christmas Day, because Claire worked. That was through choice and she enjoyed working on Christmas Day in the care home, making sure they all got a really good Christmas dinner. And Steve would come down and it was great because we'd go to the pub together. Tinkering with computers was another long-standing hobby of Stephen's. He had completed an ECDL course at the local Chamber of Commerce and would often burn the midnight oil whilst working on a PC build or doing some programming. That was what he was doing actually on the Saturday before he went missing. He came down to my house um, to have a bit of a tinker with my computer as it was playing up a little bit. 
he was telling me about the party that he was going to have at home and he was looking forward to people coming and it, leaving my house he was going to get some beer supplies a little bit of food and things because people were coming around that night sadly I fell asleep after he'd gone and didn't wake up until about 10 o'clock that night and messaged him to say look I'm really sorry but it's a bit late to come now I never saw him On January the 19th, 2008, two days before he turned 47, Stephen had a birthday gathering at home. Both Trish and Nathan had planned to attend, but ultimately neither of them made it over. The following day, a Sunday, Stephen and Claire crossed the road to the British Legion pub to continue the birthday celebrations with some friends, returning home later that night after drinks and merriment. In the early morning at approximately 3.40am, Stephen, who'd been downstairs, entered the bedroom he shared with Claire, grabbed a pouch of tobacco from a side table and left the room. A short while later, Claire heard the dog barking. Stephen had left the house. I got a text at roughly about 20 past five that morning from Claire asking if I could get in touch with her, it was urgent. I had to go to work. So I opened up um, the, the shop where I was working, got everything sort of sorted and then rang, a, rang her and she said that um, she'd got up and Steve wasn't there. So I asked the usual questions. What do you mean he's not there? You know, it'll, it'll be, I don't know, did you stay at a friend's last night? Have you had an argument? Have you fallen out? All that sort of thing. No, there's, you know, I've tried phoning his phone, but he's, I found his phone downstairs. He's left his phone. The car's gone. So I was sort of, if I'm being honest, I was sort of blasé about it. Oh, they'll have had a fallout and, you know, he's just taken off in the car for a drive for a bit. So I just said to Claire, I'd get someone to try and cover me at work and I'd come straight over. So I got to their house roughly just before nine o'clock about 10 to 9, something like that. As well as his phone, Stephen had left behind his driving licence, passport, bank cards and over £100 in cash. I don't know what to do. So I rang my brother in London, who at the time was um, a police officer, and took it from there, really. He advised me to call West Yorkshire Police straight away and report him as missing but they probably wouldn't do anything because he hadn't been missing that long. Now I reported him missing about half nine, ten o'clock and the police came just after eleven and took all the details from Claire what had happened, what time I'd got there, uh, what we'd done. Trish made the difficult phone calls to her mum and Stephen's son Nathan explaining that she believed he was missing. And that was hard. I had to ring my mum and Nathan to explain what had happened. And at that time, to be fair, you know, I was just sort of, look, it's fine. He'll probably walk in any minute. Um, they've probably just had a falling out. You know, don't worry about it and I'll ring you soon. So naturally, when you say don't worry, it's, my mum was there with, you know, within half an hour, she came up to Steve's. Nathan ended up getting a taxi and he came up to Steve's. Trish picked up Stephen's phone and began frantically working her way through his contacts. Have you seen him? Have you heard anything? He's not at home. You know, he's 
is not hiding out at your house because they've had a fallout or you know asking anything and everything I possibly could and and that was what the day was spent doing. Trish thought back to her last conversation with her brother, scanning her memory for any signs that something was amiss. She couldn't find any. There was nothing unusual. There was nothing that I could pick up on to say, you know, oh, I should have, I, sh I should have thought more about that. There, there was just nothing there. It was, it was just a normal day that Steve came down and. There wasn't anything unusual about it, and I've, I've tried to pick it apart. CCTV footage obtained from the pub across the road on the night of Stephen's disappearance showed a shadow, presumably Stephen's, exiting the house and the lights on the back of a car turning on. The weather was so horrific that night, that morning. Um, there wasn't a clear image of, yes, that's definitely Steve. Or, yes, that's definitely Steve's car. It, it was just, it showed the front door opening. There was a light on in the passageway. It showed a shadow and it showed the lights at the back of the car coming on and then them disappearing. Trish took matters into her own hands. Her brother made the journey up from London and together the pair began searching for their missing sibling. We spent, we spent days, and I mean days, out looking for him. We were looking over the strines, the snake pass. We were, we were driving all around like the top, what we call the top, so Marsden, all the moors. We were looking over uh, walls where there was a bit of the wall broken down to see if it, it, his car had gone through it or we survived basically, and it's not an ad for them, but we survived basically on Lucasade Spot. That's what kept us awake for days. We went everywhere we could think of, just putting up missing posters, cafe, shops, putting them on lamp posts, um, going to the reservoirs and putting posters up around there for the walkers that were there. We, we just covered miles and miles and miles. On January the 27th, a week after Stephen went missing, police phoned his mother with a breakthrough. His blue Ford Focus had been found abandoned on a gated dirt track off the A86 in the village of Moy in Venice, near Loch Lagan in the Scottish Highlands, over 300 miles from Stephen's home in Huddersfield. That was it. You know, it took on a different... I don't know the word, but... It... <laughs> It, it changed from that phone call and we just stopped what we were doing and and I stayed at home with my mum and the boys all went up to Scotland to, uh, to help with the, the search party. There was no damage to the vehicle and as such, the police didn't suspect any foul play. The car had been identified as it drove through speed cameras on the A1 at Lothian and Borders. The lock had been broken on the gate. We don't know if... Steve or whoever was driving had done that, but the lock was broken and the car was hidden up this dirt track. Why had Stephen driven more than six hours halfway across the country in the middle of the night to a location that, to the best of Trish's knowledge, was of no personal significance to him? As far as I'm aware, he'd never been to 
the lock, that lock. I've asked Claire and she doesn't believe that they've been to that lock. But she can't sort of say for certain, which is fair enough. You can't always remember everywhere that you've been when you're, when you're driving around places. A receipt was found in the vehicle for two bottles of juice, two pre-packaged sandwiches and two muffins. The purchases had been made at a Morrison's in Greenock, three hours from where the car was found at 9.48am on the morning Stephen had left home. Additionally, the cardboard packaging for a bottle of Morrison's Black Label whiskey was found in the car. Police conducted an extensive search of the surrounding area. Search dogs, mountain rescue teams and RAF helicopters combined forces to comb the 50 square mile area around the lake. They searched a massive, massive area. I believe they searched roughly about 50 miles and that was the Search and Rescue Dog Association, the Mountain Rescue Team and RAF Lossiemouth came out. The dogs went in the forest um, because it wasn't somewhere that you could sort of walk through. It had to be accessed with the dogs. Trish suffered problems with her legs, so she stayed at home to support her mother while the search was being carried out. She remembers the helplessness she felt waiting for news. You survive on your nerves. You, you live in on your nerves, basically. It's weird, I can sort of remember that, for me, the world had stopped. My world had stopped. And I was stood, and everybody was everybody and everything was going past me at a million miles an hour. And I just wanted to stand there and scream, why the hell aren't you looking for my brother? What are you doing? Don't you know he's missing? Don't you know the anguish and the fear and the upset that we're all going through? And why are you living your lives like like there's there's nothing wrong? Everything's wrong for me. Can't you see that? It was weird. It, it was just just like like you see on a program where somebody stood still and the, and everything's flashing by them at great speed. But they're just stood still, and it, it, it's. I don't know any other way to describe it other than that. And it, it's you're waiting for, for the phone to go, you, you, you are just living off your nerves. You're waiting for that phone call, you're waiting for that text message, you're waiting for the knock on the door. It's, it's horrible. I, w I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, anybody at all. It, it's a horrible thing to go through. The call that Trish had been hoping for never came. The search was eventually called off, and no further trace of Stephen was found. The police believed that suicide was the most likely scenario. But whilst Trish understands how the police came to this conclusion, there are still parts of the day's events that don't add up for her. It is the Cooper family's understanding the car only had approximately half a tank of petrol on leaving Huddersfield. It is impossible to have travelled over 300 miles without filling up at a petrol station or motorway services at least once. Without any cash or bank card, it also remains a mystery how purchases could have been made by Stephen on that day. He had withdrawn £250 on the Saturday prior to his disappearance, but Trish believes that between the party supplies he purchased for the gathering in his home on the Saturday night, the money he'd have spent at the club the following day, 
and the £100 he left behind on the night he left, there would have been next to nothing left over. The choice of alcohol puzzled her too. If he did have money, if he did have a, a secret stash on him, say, he would have bought Johnny Walker's Black Label whiskey. He would not have bought a cheaper brand. He, he just, if he drank vodka, it had to be Smirnoff. It wouldn't be a cheap brand. And if he, if he was short of cash, he'd rather not buy a cheaper brand and, and wait so he had the money to buy the proper brand. So I found that quite bizarre, but, you know, it's not to say that whoever it was, if it was Steve, that he went in there and with the food and the drink and everything that he bought, he'd only got enough money for, for the cheaper brand. Had Stephen been travelling alone? Or did he have a companion with him in the car? An unknown passenger or driver might explain the choice to buy two sandwiches, two muffins and two drinks. And if there was someone else in the vehicle, who were they? Where had they gone? And what did they have to do with Stephen's disappearance? While Stephen's car had been found near Loch Lagan, the lake itself wasn't searched during the initial investigation. After Stephen's disappearance, Trish was put in touch with the organisation Missing People, and through them she ended up speaking with the family of Andrew Gosden, the teenager from Doncaster who went missing in central London in September in 2007. You might remember we examined Andrew's case back in season one. They'd used this particular company, this sonar company, to search for Andrew and I contacted them and basically asked what they could do and how to do the search and everything. But that was at, at our own cost. And they said they were more than happy to search the lock for us. We paid them to to go up to Scotland and search the lock, which then I, we were told that West Yorkshire's dive team were available at that particular time and they would go up there also and search the lock with Liquivision. If I remember rightly, it was about four or five days and they searched every every part of that lock. They even looked for, because his car keys weren't with his car, so they looked, obviously, for, for clothing. They looked for his keys. They checked in drains that there was nothing in drains. The conclusion of that search, we were told, was because the current was so high and it was really, really fast-running water that it would have taken him down to the hydroelectric dam at the bottom of the lock and he would have gone through that and come out the other side in in bits basically. That's what the police opinion is. The search of Loch Lagan by the marine sonar company Stephen's family hired alongside six divers from West Yorkshire Police was conducted in September 2001, over three years after Stephen first went missing. Nothing was found and in the decades since, 
no further clues to what may have happened to Stephen have been unearthed. The mountain rescue have been amazing up there and have continued to cover that area on practice sessions just to see if if there is anything that's around there because Steve is the only person in their history that they've never not found. So dead or alive, it's possibly coming up to 50 years that they've been they've been going as a mountain rescue team. And Steve is the only person that hasn't been found. So that's something that gets to them as well. They want a conclusion to this as well as well as us. But as far as the police are concerned, there is a new team on it now and there there are going to be some new appeals going out of what form I, I'm not too sure at the minute. The the new officer that I'm speaking to has very kindly had an age progression done of Steve and has gone over and gone over things from the very beginning. She's she's done so much. Life has moved on since Stephen's disappearance. His son Nathan now has three children of his own. But for Trish, what happened to her brother remains a mystery that pains her to this day. Stephen was ruled dead by a judge in 2016 under the Presumption of Death Act following a plea entered by Stephen's partner Claire. Declarations are typically sought so a missing person's affairs and property can be dealt with. But Trish, though she understood Claire's reasoning and the desire to move on, opposed the application. We still love him, we still miss him, and he will always, always have a home and have somewhere to come that's safe, that's where he's loved, basically. Life does go on and we've got to carry on with it and in hope that... One day somebody comes forward with some information or somebody has a positive sighting of him um, and and we're getting back home. But we're really realistic enough to know that he may not be coming back home alive. He, he may be deceased and, you know, that's something that we've had to get our heads around for, for all these years and... I hope he does come back alive because, quite honestly, I think, I don't know whether I'd hug him first or slap him first for, for putting everybody through this. Stephen would have celebrated his 60th birthday last year, a day which Trish takes care to mark when it comes around. This is probably going to sound awful, but at least we don't have two days where we're sort of mourning his birthday and mourning the fact that he's, he's gone missing on another day. I, I don't know, that that probably sounds quite strange, really. I believe that somebody knows what's happened. I believe that somebody has seen something and I don't know whether they're too scared to come forward. For, for whatever reason, I'd just ask them, even anonymously, to ring the police up or to ring missing people up and give them the information that, that they know. It doesn't matter how small it is, that small piece of information could make a huge difference. We deserve to have him 
back home in whatever form that may, may be and, and not live for the past nearly 14 years with a last known sighting. We've, we've got nowhere to go, we've got nowhere to lay flowers. We've got, we've got nothing, basically. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to Stephen, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of Stephen Cooper before listening to this episode, you could still help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured in the series. On there, we've posted the age-progressed image of how Stephen might look now. There's also links where you can share vital information on these cases with the experts at Locate International. They've set up a team to investigate these cases and explore any information that comes in. And you'll find more information about the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. We can't say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.